Welcome to the Artipop Podcast. As the founder of Artipop, I've always felt we live in a highly conventional era when it comes to motherhood. But also that change is near. Therefore, I created this podcast to give voice to different refreshing perspectives around motherhood and life in general. To empower you and all the women around you to trust their intuition. I've asked a journalist whose work I love Kaira van Wijk to host this series for you. Let's use our feminine energy to shape the future. I hope you're with me. Please enjoy. Thanks for joining us today. This is your host, Kaira. Today we're talking to Holiday Phillips, a sociologist, coach, writer and speaker on topics of philosophy, spirituality, culture and personal transformation. She's also a consultant for organizations to help them develop conscious leadership and diverse, equitable and inclusive workplaces. All her work revolves around the question, what will it take to build a wiser, kinder world? Earlier this year, she wrote an article that went viral about performative allyship, which she reflects back on during her talk. She touches on racial justice, her own upbringing in London as a second generation immigrant, the meaning of ancestors, being a stepmother, and how she's been experiencing her first pregnancy. I personally found this talk to be incredibly insightful, and hope you will too. Well, let's dig in. Hi Alday, thanks so much for your time. It's a week before your due date, so we're super grateful to have you. How have you been feeling? I think, you know, the, pretty much most of my pregnancy I felt great. I felt really good, really healthy, really vibrant this week has been tough oh yeah <laughs> this week is like final slog and it's tough yeah it's really like the last the last leg basically like the last part last stretch yeah exactly yeah. so it's yeah. like oh, come out now please <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's time it's time I can imagine yeah. yeah I was also wondering with all that's going on this year and being pregnant I was wondering were your emotions heightened in a way like For example, I have a friend of mine, she's due in January and she was, she felt really strongly like, oh, I only have half a year to really change the world for the better. But then of course she realized that's not really possible. But I was wondering, yeah, how everything coming together, being pregnant, everything that's going on this year, if that impacted your your feelings as well, in a way. I'm sure it has. I mean, I, in many ways, I felt more resourced to deal with everything that's going on than less. I felt more kind of balanced and stable and strong, I think, as a result of the pregnancy, whether that's hormonal or whether that's just the sense that there's something so much greater going on to actually be creating life is such a it's a spiritual experience really so in some ways I felt much more able to deal with anything else everything seems smaller somehow yes are you also saying that in a way it also feels like it's kind of relative because it's not just about you it's also about this little child that you're bringing into the world as well yeah absolutely I think I've certainly had a sense this year of the continuation of things and and with your friend what your friend was saying about I feel I only have six months to change the world I think I've really I've felt that point too in my life like oh there's so much responsibility to do things now and I have to do this now but I think knowing that you know things don't stop with us and really I mean obviously we know that on an intellectual level but to have a baby and see that life is going to go on far beyond me Um, and that, yes, I can contribute, but I'm just one part of this great chain. Um, not that it eases the pressure, but I think it just changes the perspective of seeing that yeah. life is one long evolution and the kind of self-importance that we can often have, which is rooted in really good things. You know, we want to be helpful, we want to contribute, actually is is not quite in in keeping with reality mm -hmm. because we are only little speck in the big scheme of things yeah 
in the universe, basically. Yeah, if you really zoom out, yeah. And if we uh, zoom back in, actually, I was also wondering about your own childhood. Could you kind of describe what your parents, your mother was like, and what type of mother do you hope to be for your own child? I think at the beginning of my pregnancy, I had loads of ideas. I was thinking I really want to be, um, you know, do have very natural motherhood. So, you know, feeding the baby only natural organic stuff and spending loads of time outside and everything being really calm and earthy and all of these ideas. And, and then also you know, all the values I wanted to bring them up with. As I've got closer to the end of pregnancy, I've really dropped almost all those expectations just in the realization that I will just be, you know, the best that I can be. And, and I don't know who this little soul is going to be or what they'll need or what their personality is. So really, I, I think that I don't really have an idea of what kind of mother I'd like to be. I just know that if my baby feels loved by me and, and, and his dad and feels accepted for who they are and feels safe, then, then I will have done a good job. So um, I have very few expectations going in of myself actually going into motherhood. And I think in terms of my childhood, I had both the wonderful and extremely challenging childhood. And though there was a lot of difficult things that happened in our family. My older sister had some very severe mental health issues, which is a, always really difficult for a family to have a very, very ill child. Um, and so there was a lot of difficult times, but definitely the one thing I always knew was that I was very loved by both my parents and accepted for who I was. And I think that those two things allowed me to weather the storms mm -hmm. so I think what I will have learned from my from both my parents and particularly from my my mother is really just that unconditional love for both of me and my sister yeah um yeah we couldn't have asked for for more really in, in that sense yeah other other kind of values that you were taught by your parents that you'd really want to pass on to your baby boy as well yeah I think that we were given a lot of freedom and a lot of independence and a lot of trust. Mm -hmm. Too much trust sometimes because I got up to a lot of naughty things when I was a teenager. Um, but we were, um, my parents didn't kind of in any way wrap us in cotton wool. I mean, even as a child, I was climbing up trees. There was no kind of health and safety. Don't do this, don't do that. I was always getting into kind of scrapes like falling over and things like that and then when I was a teenager I was also pretty pretty wild I was partying a lot and um I was just very free to explore everything even though you know a lot of the things that I did in retrospect probably weren't that good for me at the time mm -hmm. um I think it's really empowered us with a spirit of um independence and actually now I I think that's something that's really served me well, like a sense of adventure and a sense of really trusting myself to, to do things. I, I don't have a lot of fear. Mm. Um, that has in many ways given me a great life. And I think that I look a lot at um, younger children today, particularly because um, well, I'm around more younger children because my partner has a daughter and I do think an increase in kind of trying to protect children from you know getting hurt or from um I don't know being exposed to things and and I I do see like a less independence less courage in kids and and probably a little bit more of a sense of um I don't know needing to be looked after all of the time and mm. I think that there's a, there's a loss there in terms of just going out there and trusting the world and just, you know, putting yourself in situations um, because we're always trying to protect them from danger. And yeah. I think I, I'm very keen to not do that with my son. Yes, because it's also like so much easier right now to track where they are because they're all on all the social media apps and everything. But that's kind of 
maybe it's not really that good for your personal development. We're only going to know that later on, but I can imagine maybe not be too precious about it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that there's the sense for me of, um, I want them to fundamentally trust that the world is a good and safe place because I believe that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if we're, if we're constantly reminding them of the dangers of the internet and don't go out walking in the streets because you know, someone could hurt you and don't climb that tree because you could fall down and break your leg, the world becomes an unsafe place for them. And for most of us, the world is a, is a good and safe place. And most people are, are good and, and we can lose that um, because of the news and because of media. And we think that everybody's out to get us, but, but I really don't believe that to be reality. Yeah. And um, I was also wondering, because you've spoken about feeling kind of a disconnect in your adolescent years, losing a sense of self and humanity. Could you talk about that a little bit and also how you overcame it? I think I was always a very introspective child person, always being kind of um, asking big questions about why am I here and who am I and Mm -hmm. what's the meaning of life and... um, kind of existentially philosophically oriented so I think that um, I yeah I I was always a little bit confused by just what's going on Um, and then I think probably having a couple of things being exposed to with my sister being very ill when I, you know, I was pretty young, I was 10 or 11 and really seeing the extent of human suffering for, for she was only 14, you know, for a young person, mm. it really rocked me because it's like you see an innocent good person and for some reason they've just been afflicted with an illness and that's quite hard to get your head around as a child because it's like, that doesn't seem fair and why is this happening and, and all of these things. So I think I felt a real... From that perspective, a real confusion about why is there suffering in the world. Mm. Um, Hard to get my head around that. And then I I think also growing up in an extremely white community, um, being mixed race, half half, um, Caribbean, half Indian, half black, half Indian, Mm -hmm. um, was also very difficult because um, not that I experienced... Mm, continuous uh, uh, kind of objective racism, but certainly felt other all the time. Yeah. So really there was a disconnection from what was around me and then understanding how to orient myself in a world where I felt very different. Um, so I think those two things, experiencing those two things very young were pretty traumatic. Um, and then in terms of how I kind of moved through it, um, I think I, I probably in my early to mid twenties, I found myself on a, a very, I, I probably the closest thing you can call it as a spiritual path and, and really taking those questions that I had about why are we here? Who am I? What's the meaning of it all? And, and looking at them through a spiritual lens and I started meditating and I traveled a lot and I spent time out in South America studying with shamans and I really went I spent about two years out of not working and just trying to get closer to the answers to these questions and that just set my life in a different path where I could contextualize all of these things in this bigger mystery that there's a lot of things we don't understand that part of life is suffering and um, and that that's okay and yeah and that's kind of just been my path ever since and things somehow becoming easier and easier. I also want to ask you of course about um, this incredibly insightful piece that you wrote on performative allyship that went viral. Um, could you speak a bit about what headspace you were in when you were writing it and also how you look back at it because it's been a couple of months since it's been published and yeah, how you look back on it now. Yeah, of course. It was a very strange experience because I just wrote it. I wrote it on my Medium page. I had like maybe a thousand Instagram followers, all of, you know, all my friends, and I had just four 
four medium followers, two of whom I think were my parents, and one of them was a bot. So I, I mean, I really had, I was writing it for no one. Um, and I didn't really have like a consistent blog writing practice either. I'd written maybe like two blogs before. I was inspired to write something out of frustration at the time when I saw, you know, it, had just, it was before the murder of George Floyd. It had just been the murder of Ahmed Arbery. And I just remember going onto Instagram one day and seeing a whole load of celebrities and influencers, primarily white women, um, doing kind of the hashtags and the black squares. Yeah, it was even before the black squares. It was just kind of a just mm. and, you know, we need to look at our white privilege, da, da, da. And I just felt really pissed off. I was just like, this means nothing. Mm. It's not helpful. Um, and so I just wrote the article really more for myself than anything to just express these feelings. Um, and then it just, I think, some it kind of just started getting shared really organically by um, a person here and then a person there, and then it just took on a life of its own. And and then before I knew it, it had had a million and a half reads or something like that. So mm-hmm. it was a very um, unusual <laughs> experience. Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of how I look back on it now... I would never write that now. It's really interesting. I mean... Oh, that's really interesting. And yet I still think that it had a huge amount of value for the time. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'm someone who's always deepening my learning and expanding my perspectives and listening to feedback and seeking out opinions that are different from my own. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've learned so much more about the limits of what I was saying Um, now that I have a broader perspective. So I think what I said was really useful for that moment yeah. because I think it allowed people to look at themselves and say, why am I really doing this? Um, and, and I think that's, that, that, was, that was significant. I mean, yeah, I guess clearly it was significant because so many people. Yeah. Um, however, in terms of that sitting within a broader philosophy, there were a lot of limits to what I was saying. I mean, I was speaking about a um, kind of within quite a small frame, which is that this is happening and it's the responsibility of white people to do their anti-racism work. Um, And that's just a partial truth, I think, because there's a whole load of other stuff going on, which is that actually... Um, I mean, I can speak to some of the stuff, but like the whole conversation that we're having really about anti-racism at the moment is about representation. It's about getting more people of colour to positions of power or privilege. Mm -hmm. But the stage that we're playing on is a pretty um, damaged stage itself. Like if, if I were to become the CEO of a Fortune 500 company now that would be celebrated as progress and moving towards a less racist world. But that company could very well be exploiting workers in Africa or yeah. damaging the environment. So the pyramid that we're, we're kind of working in is not questioned within the, the kind of mainstream anti-racism narrative. The mainstream narrative is there's an imbalance of power. Let's get more black and people of color to the top of these power pyramids mm-hmm. but now I'm seeing like these power pyramids themselves are inherently potentially inherently corrupt so yeah. um, there's a lot of assumptions that is built into the kind of mainstream anti-racism narrative there's also a um a, um, a shadow side of polarizing of kind of categorizing people in such a fixed way mm. so there's white people as black people, as people of colour, not everybody sees themselves through that lens. And actually, I know a lot of black people for whom this kind of moment of time has been really not reflective of how they feel. You know, they don't see their experience through the lens of, of, of race primarily. They don't feel oppressed and they feel very mm. um, patronised, actually, by this kind mm. of interesting that essentially says well white people have all the power and you don't and they're like actually I do I feel powerful I 
And so I think that there's there's many more questions than I portrayed in that article. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, it served a good purpose. Yes, yes. This makes me think about this beautiful, beautiful story that you shared on your IG Live about a Nigerian philosopher basically illustrating that a conversation, like you just said, uh, and a narrative also around social ju justice, white supremacy is too narrow. Mm. I would love for you to share that story because it was so such an eye-opener for me as well. Yeah, it's such a beautiful story. And so it's a story told by a, a Nigerian philosopher. He's called Bayo Akamalafe. He's one of my, my greatest teachers and one of the thinkers of our generation who I think is most... Uh, you know, really most helpful. I would really recommend anyone to, to look into his work. Um, he tells a story about how when he was teaching in a college in England, um, he was talking to his students about how he always gets stopped and searched at airports. He's a black man. And um, after he finished the lecture, one of his white students comes up to him and says, um, I'm so sorry that you experienced all of this oppression and I'm so sorry for my white privilege and I'm so sorry that I have a seat at the table and because of because I'm a white, cisgendered, straight male, you don't. Um, and Bayaraka Malafe says to him really kindly, thank you, but I reject your apology. And then the student feels even more embarrassed because he's thinking he said something wrong. He's you know, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And then Bayer says to him, no, I reject your apology because if I accept your apology, I am bowing to the idea that there's only one way to have power. Um, and then he goes on to say to the student, you know, you may not get stopped and searched at airports, but can you talk to plants? Do you hear the wisdom of your ancestors? Do you feel the power of your spirit animals? And he's speaking there to the power that he derives from the indigenous wisdoms of his culture. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's saying to the student, like, there's not only one table to have power at. And actually, I don't want to sit at your table. I'm quite happy at my table. Yeah. Um, and I think that the movement at the moment in around anti-racism, I mean, it's, first of all, like, it's incredibly powerful and needed. And I have a huge amount of respect for people who are working towards um, towards uh, a more racially equitable world through this one path of anti-racism. Yeah. But I also recognize that it's limited because it's a very, very Western perspective. Yeah. You know, so many different sources of power, spiritual power, indigenous power, ancestral power, natural power. Um, it really is just talking about economic and uh, institutional and political power. And actually it's interesting because the vast majority of people of color and black people are not living in the West and we're talking about building a more racially equitable world while pretty much ignoring a lot of the wisdom from the so-called global South, which is where most people of color are. Yeah. So I, that's for me as well, hearing that story was really eye-opening because you can always think that you're doing the right thing and you know, you are, you're trying your best but your perspective is always limited because you can only see through your own eyes. That's why we have to listen to, to more people, to different people and keep challenging our assumptions. Yeah, different voices. Do you think it's important when doing like anti-racism work, like on a personal level, to make a distinction like where you are in the world? Because there are so many different circumstances and also colonial past has played really. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the um, limits, again, of this moment is that because the Black Lives Matter movement originated in America as a very direct response to an immediate crisis that was happening around police brutality, mm -hmm. and we, we kind of adopted the movement here without filtering it through well, what's actually relevant in the UK, I can speak for, because that's where I am. Um, where we do not have police brutality because we don't have armed police. You know, it's a completely different landscape. So we're not responding to that immediate crisis. There's, there's different things here that we need to address. And I think that there's, um, yeah, we absolutely should be thinking about thinking locally, you know, what, 
what are the issues that we're actually trying to solve? What would a better world look like here? And, and you know, one of the things that they might say in America is, well, a better world would look like a world where black boys can go out on the streets without fear of being shot by police. Like, that's a very clear vision yeah. for a better world. But that's not really the case here. I don't think any of my cousins go out uh, on the streets and think they're going to be shot by a police, maybe stopped and searched, but it's not the same landscape yeah. in Europe where actually there's a different immigration pattern and and some of the people who experience some of the most um, some of the most vicious forms of racism people from North Africa who might not be yeah. black but there's a cultural racism so we need to think about um, always challenge ourselves to get closer to the detail of what is the problem that we're actually trying to solve? What's the world that we're actually trying to create? Because exactly. it can be very easy to just get very generic and say like, oh, we just want a less racist world. What does that actually mean? Yes. It's less clear, to be honest here, I think, than it is in the States. So there can be a certain level of, of laziness for, for all of us where we just adopt something that's clear. Okay, yeah, America, that's clear. We'll just <laughs> adopt it here. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it's here and then to to your point as well about the colonial past we have to reckon with a completely different history here um states do you know we don't didn't have legal segregation in a different past which is colonization and again i think that's there is not enough conversation going on about our relationship our current relationship with countries in africa and india who we continue with our purchasing power with our consumerism if we were really going to look at our racism in a in a a real way we should be having many more conversations about violent supply chains and less conversations about microaggressions that's my my personal perspective and and actually in some ways that's where the kind of white privilege narrative collapses because I, as a black woman, am just as culpable for the continued exploitation of uh, countries in Africa and India. It's, I guess, is what you're saying that recognizing that we're in a privileged position and then there are all these bigger systems at play where people, um, like you said, are being suppressed. For example, if you look at fashion or you know, all those industries where it's just going wrong on the daily still, you know, and that's not something we're looking at enough, maybe still. Yeah, yes. And, and I do also think that we can default to over-focusing on things that don't actually fundamentally challenge the biggest system. Hmm. Like to say, actually, where are the most exploitative points in the way that we live? Um to look at how we buy, the way we treat the environment. Like that, would, that would require massive change. I mean, people to fundamentally change the way that we live yes. um, and the way that we relate to the natural world. And so most of us are unwilling to, to do that because it threatens the very fabric of reality. So I think, whereas it is easier, actually to say well I'm going to do my personal anti-racism work so I'm not um I don't know touching a black woman's hair at work it's like yeah that's good that's a good thing to do but that doesn't really challenge the deepest most kind of threatening issues in 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 reality so I think a lot of the more difficult stuff continuously gets left out of the conversation because we don't know how to uh, approach that to say like well okay we're we are you know, there's continuous degradation of the Amazon. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that is a huge crisis. Yeah. But what, uh, what can we do about that? I mean, who knows? So I think a lot of these, these issues continue to, uh, that feel further away and feel more complex. We just leave them out of the conversation. And, and I feel very strongly that that's what this, moment calls for us to to do to look a little bit deeper and I feel that even more so going into motherhood because um, I don't want my son to grow up in a world where he is seeing himself as you know as a, as a mixed race boy as a bottom as the bottom of a, of a pyramid mm-hmm. while actually not realizing that 
anyone who's living, I don't know if anyone, but most people who are living in England are already at the top of the pyramid. Yeah, yeah. But it's really also, it's, it's both about looking locally and looking at your own um, direct environment, but also it's really about what the philosophers said as well. It's about building new mountains. Like you didn't want to sit on this mountain, but building new mountains, building new economic models as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there's, and I think that there's lots of ways that we can think about that. And, and um, some of them are much more close than we think. Like just looking at the, we, we sometimes think we have to do such big things. So we think, okay, well, I need to run a charity or I need to go out and campaign on this issue. And all of these things are valuable things to do. But it can be as close as just looking at the food that we eat and where we're sourcing that from and just moving that more locally. Like that can be a huge act of, of activism. Yes. Um, it can be even smaller, like calling your grandparents. I mean, that might seem like it's completely irrelevant, but I think that we don't really know the relationship between cause and effect. And what I think I know to be true is that ultimately what we're trying to do is to build a more connected, more loving world. Mm -hmm. So any opportunity that you have to do that is a tiny act of activism. So calling your grandparents could be that step that you can take today towards a more racially equitable world. I mean, it's how do I look at the way that I interact with the world and bring into that the values of the new world that I want to create it's really easy for us often to look at like what we're against and then everything becomes a fight but actually we have to pay equal attention to look at what we're for and then find as many ways as possible to live through that yeah and what i find really beautiful as well is also your approach centers around this idea of what is mine to do and i really love that could you break that down for us as well? Yeah, I, I think that this for me comes from just the fact that, well, a couple of things. First of all, we really just don't know what will create a better world. We we can think that we do and we can have ideas, um, but the fact is so many people have completely opposing ideas. Even if you look at the political system, someone on the people on the left might say, well, you know, what's going to create a better world is to have much more state intervention and to have more financial support. Whereas people on the right would say, no, that creates a dependent world. We need to encourage entrepreneurship or whatever it is. Even about one topic, two people can have the completely opposite view. So we don't know what's, what's going to make a better world. So that's the first thing is to really recognize that there are many different ways, many different paths um and so when we think about well, what is mine to do we each have a way of being in the world and and to trust that that's what you're here to bring forth i think is very helpful um and then to also look at the fact that if if what we're talking about often in terms of um, social justice is redistribution of power then we all have different locations of power you know someone could be the CEO of a company, someone could be a parent, someone could be um, uh, have a big social media following. So you need to look at where you have power and say, well, I have a power in this place. I have skills in this place. So this is what I can do rather than assume that everybody needs to be a campaigner or everybody needs to be um, a philanthropist. You know, we have to look at what, what can we do Um, And I think that this, for me, also really comes back to this point of performative allyship. I mean, I think one of the greatest things that we can do, yeah, as parents is to bring up children with strong emotional skills, empathy, resilience, compassion. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a huge contribution to a better, more beautiful world. Yeah. that's silent work you know you're probably never going to get recognition yes exactly it's silent work yes yeah and not from you're not going to grow a social media following from it Mm -hmm. you're not going to see 
great activist, but actually your contribution is huge. And I think in many ways, a lot of people have been lulled into this idea that they need to be shouting about what they're doing and that they need to be convincing other people to be good and, and that that's the way to be an activist. But actually, that's just a few people's jobs. Yeah. You know, some, some, some people are meant to be out there convincing the world. Some people are meant to be out there giving inspirational talks, but that's probably just like 1% of the world. <laughs> the rest of the world should yeah. small, consistent, silent actions. Yeah, we all have our own part to play. And it's not about yeah, shouting it from the rooftops, but yeah, silent work. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I was also wondering, why do you think there's such power in being a voice of nuance, especially in these times? Um, the voice of nuance, certainly, that I'm committed to providing is to continuously challenge the idea that there are good people and bad people. And to rather say, Maybe there might, there might be good views and bad views, even that's questionable, but, but that is, isn't about morality. This is about um, different perspectives and how we can hold different perspectives together and how we can be in constructive conflict and how we can build a world where people do hold different views because you cannot get people to change their views by telling them how awful they are. That is a bad strategy. It doesn't work. <laughs> I, I think you said also in another podcast, you said people listen to you on the level that you speak to them. Um, I thought it was really valuable as well. So you can't really, um, really change people's minds or even if you don't want to change someone else's mind, but really get together, really get closer if you're not speaking on a level where they want to listen even, I guess. Yeah, I think fundamentally that's true. That actually, if you're telling someone what an awful person they are and how morally bad they are and how ignorant they are, most people are going to close down. Yeah. Um, however, I do probably think that there is some value in shock, that when, you, when people can suddenly see, um, oh my gosh, I've held this awful view and, and like... Um, wow, I feel really bad about that. Like th there might be some value, I think, in that kind of immediate shock. Um, I think that a lot about, I think a lot about how one of the, the, the things of our generation that we will look back on in say a hundred years time and be really um, disgusted with ourselves for is the way that we post, uh, farm animals. I think in like 100, 200 years time, we'll look back and think, I cannot believe that we caused harm on other living beings in the way that we did. But right now, you know, most of us eat meat, right? And we don't think, and dairy and stuff and eggs, and we don't think we're awful people. We're not awful people. Mm. Um, but I do think for, there would be value for some of us to like go to an abattoir and see the life drained out of another being's uh, like eyes. And, and that is that kind of shock value of, of, of taking our heads out of the sands and yes. being shown, actually, we're doing some pretty awful things. So I, I think it's both at, and I don't think it's useful to just continuously shout at people, but I do think sometimes we need to face our own shadows in a, in a bit more of a brutal way um, to shock complacency. Yeah, that makes total sense. I was also curious because... Um, this philosopher you speak of and you love his work, I would love to read more about him as well. He talks about ancestors. And I was wondering how well do you know and how close are you to your own ancestors? Yeah, um, very close. I, I actually did, um, I, I often speak to my ancestors. I'm my, my kind of closest ancestors, my grandmother on my mum's side was a, um, a philosopher and a poet in India and she was just the most amazing woman and kind of timeless um, and I feel deeply connected to her so a lot of you know anything I'm doing I'll always bring my grandmother kind of into the space and I have a picture of her up in, uh, in our house and um, I feel I feel like I still have a relationship with her, even though she's she's not here on the physical plane. Um, and and then other ancestors, 
Mm, I feel connected to a kind of longer line of ancestors, but not necessarily ones who are mine. Not like, oh, this is my great-great-grandmother, Mabel. I feel connected to her. But I really feel myself as part of, I think I always call it the link in the great chain, Mm. that actually everybody is of their time. Okay. And can do and living how they can live and then you're the next link in the chain and my hope is that the chain is moving towards a more beautiful world um but I really see myself as like in the middle of the chain so I know that there was loads before me and there's loads after me um and for me this kind of connection to ancestral uh the ancestral passage of time um, is very helpful in diminishing my own sense of self-importance. I think that's probably the most most helpful thing because I, um, yeah, I just know that there's so much more to come after. Yeah. Um, and that what I know now to be true will no longer be true in uh, 100 years, 200 years. Um, and so... There's a real humility for me in seeing myself as both a descendant and also an an ancestor to future generations because it just allows me to hold on to my own views, my own needs, my own kind of desires much more loosely because I know that I'll just be, I'll just be gone soon, really. Yeah. Um, And I'll have done what I can do and then I'll just be, you know, a speck in the past and that's, for me, that's really comforting. That's really beautiful. Um, and, and that's very much in, in keeping with the wisdom traditions of my cultural background, you know, Indian philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom always talked to us about how we're just, a, we're just a tiny speck of stardust in the whole universe. And that's a very um, Hindu, and my mom is not Hindu, but, but there's a very Hindu kind of philosophy. And then similarly on the African side of my family, we see our ancestors as here with us, mm. and we see ourselves as kind of youngers until we're elders. So until you're really an elder, you're just you know you don't know anything. You're not wise. You're just a baby. Yeah, I feel very fortunate to have those two traditions running through running through me. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I also think what's so interesting, uh, I I I feel like in a lot of indigenous cultures, it's really about you're going to take care of the world for the next seven generations, mm. which I think is such a different perspective. You don't just think about the here and now, also economically, but really seven generations into the future. And it really changes how you approach everything, I think. Absolutely. That's really beautiful. And actually, um, they say my aunt would talk about how it's seven generations forward and seven generations back. Yes. So that you're both preserving the, being a custodian of the earth for seven generations forward, but you're also healing the wounds of seven generations back. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really, really beautiful perspective. And, and I think it again speaks to this, um, one of the, um, maybe is it challenges that we have in the West where, because we live in very um, like isolated nuclear, quite lonely um, formats, you know, we're just in our, in our little house with our family of four that we don't necessarily see ourselves as part of a broader whole, mm-hmm. um, part of a broader community, part of a broader timeline. So there's a lot that we can learn from from, yeah, as you say, indigenous cultures, indigenous wisdoms. Yeah. And, and wisdoms that are not. So I, I, I've been talking to a lot of my <clears throat> white friends as well. Like there are deep indigenous wisdoms within European culture as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the whole history of, of like witchery and um, paganism. And I think a lot of the time people can be like, well, I need to look to the exotic to find find something but actually all of us have indigenous wisdoms in our in our history um even if you're from you know from this land if you're 100 english and um, they all meet somewhere in the past with very very similar viewpoints so 
I really encourage people to look you know, both afar, but also to look into your own personal um, history. I think that that's one of the things that's happening, that's kind of happening now, which again is not helpful is like, there's um, there's like a dismissing, dismissing of everything white as bad, and mm-hmm. um, everything in history white as bad. Now, yeah, of course, there's a lot of uh, very, very, very bad energy in white ancestral history in terms of colonialism, slave ownership, etc. Every single culture has good and bad, and it's really important to not see one culture as good and one culture as bad. Yeah, so interesting. I was also wondering, this is your first pregnancy, but you already said you're also a stepmother. Um, what has that taught you about motherhood so far? Or that did that already ch- change you in a way, becoming a stepmom? It's taught me that it's incredibly difficult to be a parent, much more difficult than I could have ever, um, ever imagined. I mean, gosh, yeah. It's like a... I was trying to explain this to my best friend the other day. I was saying, I feel like what I've learned about parenting from this, you know, time of being a stepmother is like, for me anyway, looking into the eyes of my stepdaughter and just seeing her, I don't know, just when she's happy or when she's laughing or when she's learning something, it's like, it gives so much meaning and purpose to my life in a way I could never have really... I don't know, couldn't have even framed before because I hadn't had that experience. Um, so like, the deeper nourishment of life is just exponentially increased. But then on the other side, like the day-to-day enjoyment of life is kind of d- decreased, I think. Mm-hmm. So they always need something from you and there's screaming and there's crying and there's wetting the bed and there's constant cleaning and <laughs> all of this stuff. So mm-hmm. I, I think I've really learned like, I feel like I understand why people say parenting is the hardest job in the world and then also the most rewarding. Um, I think it's also difficult, very different being a step parent because you're, um, especially a newish one, you're, well, there's a whole added layer of complexity of them trying to understand who you are and you trying to work out where your, what your boundaries are. And, you know, you're not their mother. And I certainly feel like I, want to respect that for her, her mother and, you know, pay a role that is helpful, but never trying to step in and be, be a mother to her. Um, but at the same time, you are kind of a maternal figure. So you're kind of like constantly trying to navigate this place where you're, you have a responsibility to, I have a responsibility to her, I have a responsibility to her mother and to my partner, Jack. So it's really difficult to be honest. I, I think it's going to be, um interesting when we have the when we start you know have our own child because then you move into this blended family territory and there's all the complications that come with that but um I mean largely I've I've loved it and it's been an amazing like practice run of, of seeing how you like yeah how I respond to to having a child around and I think I've I've both loved it and found it really, really difficult, which seems like is the reality for all parents. So I think I have like a real reality. I'm not going into parenthood like starry-eyed thinking it's just going to be amazing and easy and I'm just going to love my child all the time. I'm going in with a bit more of a real sense of like, sometimes you just want to hide in a, in the toilet. <laughs> hide like, in the closet, yeah. 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 <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And you spoke about this a little bit already, but how have you felt about the mental and physical transformation during your pregnancy? I've loved it. I've really, really, really found pregnancy like the most amazing experience of my whole life. I've loved the body changes. I I put on so much weight. I think I was actually very thin before. I didn't even realize because I used to do a lot of exercise, but I've put on like, 24 kilograms or something like absolutely loads and I love it I love like all the new curves and the new juiciness and so the physical changes I've got massive boobs which I absolutely adore um so I, mm-hmm. physical changes have been amazing um and just feeling like there's a life growing inside inside me yeah I've loved it um and then emotionally I've also been very very 
very fortunate, I think. I've really felt that it's made me feel stronger and more resilient. Um, I, I think that, yeah, it's been a very super joyful time for me. I think, to be honest, um, have this pregnancy coming in the year of COVID, with all of the tragedies that have happened alongside COVID, um, for me personally, has been a real blessing mm. because it's basically, you know, I've just been at home and my partner's been at home and we used to live just literally around the corner from my my mum and around the corner from his mum and my sister. We were all just there. And in some ways it recreated the kind of, I suppose, like ideal pregnancy experience that you might have where you're just at home and everyone, all your family's around you and everyone's bringing you food. And oh, yeah, that's nice. So I think I was very, very, and I was able to work from home and, you know, I was very, very fortunate, to be honest, that this, the way that this coincided meant that I've almost had the ideal pregnancy, um, like very low stress and in, in not having to commute, not having to, you know, do all of these things that make it more physically dif- difficult. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I found it really great. I think I, in terms of as well, the mental, the thing that makes me most, most worried is not so much having a baby. I feel like having a baby's fine, child fine. The thing I can't get my head around is having an adult child. Mm. That's what's kind of scared me because I think I that has been a little bit um daunting, really understanding like not that my youth is over, but that kind of I'm a lot older than I kind of thought thought of myself as because, you know, I don't know, that this child's gonna be an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old and a yeah. and that's going to be a 60-year-old. And I think that's been quite, um, yeah, having to face my own mortality in that way has been pretty, I found it like quite scary at times. Like, oh, wow, I'm like a third of the way through my life. Like, sh- that sucks. Oh, yeah. I don't want to be. I want, I want more life. Yeah. So, yeah, that's been a really scary thing for me. Yeah. Like you make these little jumps in time all of a sudden. You can already picture yourself there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, no, like time, so much time has passed. And, oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting, really. Yeah. It's like it open, opens up a whole new scope in a way. Yeah. And lastly, um, this is a question that we ask all our guests. There's a certain status quo, at least in the West, uh, when it comes to motherhood. Have you sensed that in a way? And is there anything you'd like to change about it? There's definitely a couple of things that I've sensed. So one of the things that really upset me during my pregnancy is that any uh, there were a couple of times where I had like um, some kind of like symptoms, like I was having itchy hands or I was having cramps and the immediate things that people would say is like oh but have you been eating too much of this or have you been exercising too much and yeah the immediate thing is like it's your fault yeah and you're thinking oh my god just go away like, I'm <laughs> go away it's almost certain our bodies are just doing what we're saying. Yeah. yeah the immediate um instinct is because people want to help they they kind of blame the mother and um, so I've really been aware of that in pregnancy is that there's a huge amount of expectation that anything that goes wrong is something that you've done. And that's, you know, the trauma that people experience when they have a miscarriage. It's because, yeah, a lot of the time society is saying, oh, it's because you did this and because you didn't do this. And of course, it's not. Your body just did what your body did. Um, so I definitely see that, that there's a huge kind of, like um, instinct to blame the mother or when you see children having a tantrum outside people think oh gosh you know the mother's probably not doing this x y and z mm-hmm. um, so I definitely that um, and and that has uh, that did upset me in, in in the moment in terms of going into motherhood at this particular point, I can genuinely say that I don't care at all. Mm, that's good. What yeah. people um, and I think again, a lot of that has been the social isolation that has been a result of COVID, which has been awful in many ways. For me, has also been really empowering because so much less of my life is filtered through what other people think and do because. 
I'm like not I'm not seeing any other people. So it's like um, the whole landscape of life is different now. It's like I feel much less tethered to society in, in a way because there isn't this constant interaction um, with, with with people. So I, I found that to be a very like weird but wonderful. Um, impact of this year that actually in some ways social isolation can afford us a lot of empowerment because we're just living our life how we want to without the eyes of other people um so i think that i'm going in yeah really not 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 caring what other people think and then also i am the first of my friends to have a child Ah. so there's nothing which is really weird because we're you know we're kind of early 30s um so no one had no one there's yeah there's nothing nothing to compare to so I think I'm quite lucky in that sense and like I'm the first I'm the first round um but I I can imagine that there is a um a pressure to yeah to to go back to work to not work to put your child in all of these clubs and yeah, I hate all of that shit. I'm definitely not going to engage in it. Yeah, all the fuss around it. Yeah, yeah the fuss and, and all of the kind of and and I think again that was a lot of, a lot of afforded to me by my um, childhood because we had such a difficult time having a, a such a sick child in the family. Mm-hmm. I so many so many people could have judged my parents and said, "Oh, it's your fault because of this," and and I know my parents judge themselves mm. um, because I really understand you know, mental health issues. For example, I understand that it's no one's fault. And um, I think that because I grew up with that, I have a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of space for, for not judging my own parents because I know they did the best they could. And then also therefore a lot of space for not judging myself because I realized that you can do you can do everything in, you be trying to be the perfect parent and you can still, you know, have a child who is, who is very sick. And, and I think that that has taught me, um, taught me a lot about the, that there is, you know, there's things we can't explain in the world. And so I don't judge other parents. And so I, 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 I don't judge other parents and therefore I don't care about other parents judging me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good, actually, I think. That's good, yeah. And you already pictured yourself as an elder and as an ancestor. So I was wondering, how would you envision an ideal future for, well, specifically mothers, families, say 25 years from now? Do you have ideas about that? I think I think I would really love... Um, and is is for there to be more of a sense of community. I think having said that, social isolation is great, which I have I've loved it this year. We're going, I'm kind of a mm-hmm. so it's been good for me. But I do think that um um yeah that 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 this we all work so hard, don't we? Like work is such a big part of of most of our lives, and, mm. and so I find there to be a lot less time just being with each other, you know, being with our families, being with our friends, being, you know, knowing our neighbours, being part of the local community. And that could also be because I live in London. But for me, that's not a big feature of, of life, feeling like I'm part of a community. Um, and I think that my vision for a world in 25 years, and again, I, I hope one of the outcomes of the pandemic is that we do realize that we uh, need each other more and that social connection is important and that we want to know our neighbors and that we want to spend time with our parents and and our friends and our sisters and our brothers and all of this this kind of thing and and that for me is I I can certainly see that motherhood can be very lonely I think my vision for 25 years time would be that we return a little bit more to that idea of where it takes a village to raise a child yeah where we're more yeah we're more doing it as a community and again that comes to this thing of safety like I would love my kids to be able to be playing out on the like I did when I was growing up and 
and for there to just be a sense of take more of a sense of togetherness rather than this kind of nuclear family and that you know the parent and most often the mother has to do it all on their all on their own Mm -hmm. and then certainly also you know I think this is changing but my intention is to take six months off work but I'm also very open to the fact that it might be more and Mm -hmm. I I for motherhood to be given more space rather than just being seen as something that's done around and alongside work but to really see Mm. the rearing of a family as a valid path in life not just something that you do when you have time to break from work so that it's kind of elevated to a much higher status I guess in our in our vision of what's important in the world yes yes so something that you do isolated on your own you kind of like step out of society it's like really more part of part of all of our lives really exactly exactly well thank you so so much for your time it was so it was so lovely talking to you and so insightful as well well thank you so much for having me thank you yes thank you bye thanks so much for tuning in if you'd like to know more about anna's idea of the new motherhood head on over to the pilot episode where she explains more about this Please hit subscribe if you'd like to be notified when a new episode is up. Also, we'd be very happy to get your feedback and possibly suggestions for new topics or interviewees. Hope this episode informed, inspired, opened up your mind in some way. Until next time.